Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Our Holy Father, we thank you that we can come to you today as a father who cares, and yet we can come with great boldness because of the great exchange. We thank you that the one who knew no sin there on Golgotha became sin for us, that when we come and trust him to save us, that he gives us your very righteousness. And because of that, we come and we approach you with the confidence and the righteousness and the merit of the Lord Jesus. We are grateful that we can intercede for this church and the church around the world. We pray especially for the believers in Libya this morning. As over 20,000 have perished in that country in the last week. We pray for the witness and testimony of those Christians who might extend a, a branch of hope to a largely Muslim country. We thank you for the incredible work that you are doing in Iran and Iraq with tens of thousands who have been converted in the last few years alone, but with it great persecution. So strengthen the church there to continue to confess Jesus as Lord. Now we are grateful that we still know freedom in this nation. May we never take that for granted. And we ask this morning as we open your word, not in hiding or in secret, but openly, that you would give us minds and hearts to comprehend what we will study today and in the months ahead. I pray that this prophet would be used of you to renew our minds, to change the way we think, that we might indeed grow to the fullness that belongs to Christ. So help me through this whole series, and help me today. Come and fill me and anoint me and use me, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the prophet Malachi. If you are new to the Bible, just find Matthew. That's the first page in the New Testament. Go back a page or so, and you're right in Malachi. Now, it's not Malachi. He was not an Italian prophet. Uh, all the prophets of the Scripture are Jewish. Every book in the Bible that is written is written by a Jewish man. With that said, he comes at the end of the age, before the 400 years of silence when there is no prophet in Israel, and he preaches to a generation, not just of the first coming of Christ, but as we'll see, he'll look down the corridors of time to when the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, will come back a second time. Now, Malachi lived in a dark time in human history, and the scripture, of course, mimics what happens when Jesus came the first time with what will happen the second time. And so our study is critically important because as we work through this short little book, we're going to see that he is going to speak to our day, the day in which we live. It's a short little book. It's just four chapters, but it's profound, it's powerful, and it's so, so practical. Now, it was Aristotle who said, like archers, we shall stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. So I hope this morning to delineate the target so you can see it. Now, before we get into the finer points of the introduction, let me share with you three objectives I have over the next several months as we study the prophet Malachi. 
My first objective is that we grasp the meaning and the contents of this short little book. You know, when you take a book of the Bible and you go through every chapter and every verse, you potentially can learn it. But you have to do some work on your part. You know, there's two kinds of Bible study. There's what we call input Bible study. That's what I do every Sunday. In obedience to Christ, I'm called to feed the flock of God. I'm called to preach the word. I'm not here to preach politics, unless, of course, the political realm intersects with the moral realm. And then I will speak and without apology. But I'm here to preach the word of God. That's input Bible study. But then there's what we call involvement Bible study where you on your own begin to dig into the scriptures. And there are too many Christians today who are under the preaching of the word, but they are not in the word for themselves. And so I hope that you will get a firsthand grasp of this short little book, that you'll take home your notes, you'll read them, you'll study them. I hope you'll take notes. I hope you bring a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, come tonight to meet the pastor. Now, unfortunately, Malachi is a little-known prophet. Most of you know, well, it's the last book in the Old Testament. We know that much. And if you're a real scholar, you might know, well, there's a chapter in there about tithing because that's about the only thing that preachers ever preach out of Malachi. But as bismally little is known about this great prophet of God. And yet what he says is profoundly important for the day that we live in. So I want us to master the contents of this book so that when we're done, you can think your whole way through the book, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. I want you to master the contents so ultimately this book can master you. We're not here to become smarter sinners. We're here so that we can learn the scripture, renew our minds, obey it, and become more like the Lord Jesus. Now, my second objective this morning and in the months ahead is that we'll discover some critical principles to having a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it was nearly a decade before the early church had their first book of the Bible. And so when they gathered on the Lord's day, they certainly on occasion could hear the apostles' teaching, but they poured over the Old Testament scriptures, and rightly so. Jesus said, the scriptures speak about me. He said, Moses wrote about me. He said, Abraham saw my day and believed. Jesus is the hero of the Old Testament scriptures. And so even here in Malachi, there's critical principles on how to have a vital pulsating walk with the Lord. But Malachi lives in a day where the people are jumping through all the religious hoops with very little life change. They remind me of what Jesus said in Matthew 15, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, quoting the prophet Isaiah. And of course, Malachi lives in a day when the seeds for Pharisaism, of which there'll be some 6,000 when Jesus steps on the planet, The seeds for Pharisaism, legalism, having religion without a relationship, having a creed of sorts without a change in character will become prominent. And it was true in his day, and it becomes especially true by the time the Lord Jesus arrives. It was D.L. Moody who said, character is what you are in the dark. And then maybe today we often say, well, character is who you are when no one else is looking. And of course, here were people who had all this formalism ritualism, but no life. And Jesus will later say to those Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. People going through all the motions externally, but with no heart-pulsing relationship. The third objective I have in studying this book for the next several months is I hope we'll gain some practical insights concerning marriage and family. 
In the prophet Malachi, we find one of the most extended messages on the marriage covenant, more so than in any other place in all the Old Testament. And yet, this is an unknown book. And typically, in any church, especially if they're evangelistic as we are, the sins of the culture come into the church. And so if you win people to Jesus, you will win people that will carry all kinds of baggage with them. And if I calculate it correctly, about 60% of our people are at least on a second marriage. And one of my goals when we come to that, it's still a long time away, is not to preach against you, but if you've been divorced and down that road, I want to A, make sure that you've truly experienced God's forgiveness for what you've done, that you make no excuses for what you've done, but I also hope to equip you with a special ministry that you can have out of your failure if you've experienced that. And so those are the overall objectives I have over the next several months. Now, you can see on your note-taking outline, I have three specific objectives for today. First, I hope us to grasp the historical background of the book of Malachi. If you don't understand where in biblical history this man stands, it will be difficult to understand and apply the book. Secondly, I want us to get an overview of the book, the big picture, because when you get the big picture of any book of the Bible, the component pieces take on so much more meaning. And then third, I hope to crack the door today with the first five verses. So let's go ahead and get started, and that way if you fall asleep and wake up, you'll at least know where we are, okay? First of all, let's start with the historical background of Malachi's day, the historical background. Now, I know history maybe was not your favorite subject in school, but unless you can put him together historically, the book won't make much sense to you. Uh, You're in the last book of the Old Testament, and if you fan to the left, comparatively speaking, it's probably the clean section of your Bible. Two-thirds of the Bible comprise the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and maybe with the exception of the Psalms and the Proverbs, you don't read it much. And one of the reasons is because it's so intimidating to so many believers. And so when you study an Old Testament book, especially the prophets, you want to know, well, what's the historical setting in which they ministered? So let me give some broad strokes concerning the historical background of the Old Testament. If you remember, God met a Gentile by the name of Abram, and he's going to form a new nation. Remember, everyone prior to Genesis 12 are Gentiles. Noah, Adam, they're all Gentiles. But God is going to start a new nation that's going to be called Israel because through that nation, he's going to bring the Messiah. And he founded it through Abraham, who was married to Sarai or later Sarah. And they have two sons, the son of the promise and the son of the bondwoman. And of course, Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman, Hagar, she has 12 sons that form the 12 Arab nations that are habitually against Israel even to this day. Isaac is the son of promise. He, in turn, has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons that form the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Due to a severe famine and the providences of God, they go down to Egypt. There's 30 years of peace until there's a Pharaoh that comes on the throne that does not know Joseph. And just as God had prophesied to Abraham Your people will be in bondage there for 400 years. So they spend 430 years in Egypt, 400 years of bondage during that time frame. 
God said, I'll wait 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorite is full. We were going into a biblical site a few days ago in Israel, and I was explaining how the Jewish people were given the land. They didn't, they're not there as usurpers, as occupiers, as some people will describe them. They were given the land, and God told them to take it from the Amorites because the Amorites were some of the most wicked, vicious, heinous, evil people you could imagine. As they took even their little babies and they offered them in the fire to Moloch, much like we do today in our abortion clinics. In either case, there was a Pharaoh that did not know him, but in the providences of God, God raises up a leader by the name of Moses. He leads the people out of Egypt. A journey that should have taken 11 days took 40 years because of the unbelief of the people. He passes the baton to Joshua. Joshua eventually dies, and in one generation, degeneration takes place. And for a period of time, they're led by the judges. We call it the time of the judges. Eventually, the people look around. They see the nation surrounding them have a king, and so they want a king. And so we move into the period of the kingdom, sometimes called the period of the monarchy. The first three kings in Israel's history are the most famous. Saul, David, Solomon. It's easy to remember because they each rule for 40 years. So for the first 120 years, the kingdom is united under Saul, David, and Solomon. But it doesn't stay united forever. If you remember in 1 Kings 11, because of Solomon's moral compromise, God said he will tear the kingdom from him. He'll split it in two. But for the sake of his father, David, he'll wait until his son takes the throne. Solomon dies. Jeroboam uh, a Rehoboam comes to the throne. Rehoboam listens to the elders, to the young men of Israel. It's bad advice. And so Jeroboam leads a movement where the kingdom splits in two. The 10 northern tribes are now called Israel. And this is important because b- before that, the whole nation is called Israel. And in a few instances, even after the nation splits, the whole group is called Israel because God ultimately sees them as one people. But generally speaking, once the nation splits, the 10 northern tribes are called Israel, or sometimes they're called Ephraim after the larger uh, tribe, or sometimes Israel and Samaria. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, are called after the larger of the two. And so for 209 years, the northern kingdom, again, is called Israel, and they eventually split. What happens? Well, it's easy to remember, A comes before B, I comes before J. I hope you're listening, because some of you should be taking notes, because this is brand new to you. And when you come into the New Testament, and you're looking at cross-references, and you go into the Old Testament, you need to know at what point in Israel's history was that book written, or you're not even going to understand the New Testament quote in its context. A comes before B, I before J. Assyria before Babylon, Israel before Judah. The Assyrians come down in 722 BC and they attack the 10 northern tribes and carry them away into captivity. Eventually, Assyria is overthrown by the Babylonians. The Babylonians then come down in 586 BC, 136 years later, and they carry away the two southern tribes. And so it's called the Babylonian captivity. And they're there for 70 years. Why 70 years? Nothing is accidental. God prophesied 
why it would be 70 years and gave us the reason. Listen to this verse from Leviticus 25, verse 3. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather it in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And so for 490 years, because the people's focus was on idolatry, they violated this principle. Remember, 20 kings in the north, they're all wicked. 20 kings in the south, 12 are wicked, 8 are righteous. It's easy to remember. And so you'll often read of two kings ruling at the same time because he's describing the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And for 490 years, holistically, the nation had disobeyed. They didn't trust God that in the seventh year, they could allow the fields to be fallow fallow, and God would still provide. So God, because of their idolatry, carries them away. And of course, the time dictated is 70 years to give the land the 70 years of rest. And so you'll read during this time frame the Psalms of Lament, like Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion or Jerusalem. And even today, God says, I I want you to live in moral purity. And you violate it. And you weep. God says, I want you to live with integrity. And you violate it. And you weep. God says, I want you to obey my word and apply my word. And you basically stick your fingers in your spiritual ears, and you weep. Only laments come because sin pays pays awful wages. Listen to what Jeremiah the prophet will say in the 25th chapter. And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation. Remember, that's what Daniel the prophet was reading when he is given the great prophecy found in Daniel 9. He is trying to figure out how much longer here in Babylon, so he studies Jeremiah the prophet. Oh, 70 years, it's almost over. And so having known 490 years of Israel's past, God then gives him a vision for 490 years of Israel's future. When the 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans and I will make it an everlasting desolation. You know what happened. You can read it in the prophet Daniel. Belshazzar is having a rip-roaring, drunk, immoral party and he calls for the articles that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had captured out of the temple, those holy instruments, and he begins to drink from them. And the handwriting literally appears on the wall with a hand And Darius the Mede steps in, and he's overthrown, and Cyrus comes to power. So the power shifts to the Persians and to the Medes. And of course, God eventually stirs the heart of King Cyrus. Cyrus is an amazing man. He is named ever before he is born by the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah says there's going to be a king. His name will be Cyrus. But there will come a time when he will release the people of Israel, and some of you were with me in Qumran last week, and we talked about why the Dead Sea Scrolls were so important, because it sucked out the liberal argument that these books had to have been written after the fact. In either case, uh, we read now in Second Chronicles 36, 
And by the way, that last chapter and those last verses serve as an introduction to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Listen to these words. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, for Jeremiah spoke of it as well, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God who has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, the God of heaven, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go. And so the second great exodus takes place, the first out of Egypt, the second out of Babylon. And so when we think of Malachi, you want to think of him coming at the very end of the Old Testament. He lives and prophesies about 100 years after Cyrus. So again, whenever you read an Old Testament book, you want to ask, is it during the time the kingdom is united? Is it time after they've been divided before they go into exile? Or is it after the exile? And so it's not difficult to keep in track. There's only a few prophets like Samuel and Nathan, who preached during the time of the United Kingdom. But then again, the kingdom splits. Remember, there are 17 books in the Old Testament. We call them major and minor prophets based on the length of writing. 17 that bear a name. There are other prophets like Ahijah or Elijah or Elisha who don't have books written by them. But 17 that have a book written by them, 12 of them are pre-exilic prophets. So when you read someone like, you know, Isaiah or Jeremiah or whoever it might be, you want to ask, did this prophet preach to the northern kingdom or to the southern kingdom or both? And when you understand that, the book just comes alive. All of a sudden, you begin to see and grasp its meaning. There's only two prophets who preached during the time of the Babylonian exile during that 70 years, Ezekiel and Daniel. And then there are three prophets who preach after the exile. We call them post-exilic prophets, and those simply are Haggai, Zechariah, or Malachi. So Malachi is what we call a post-exilic prophet. That's the historical setting for the book, all right? In addition to the historical setting, I want us to get the big picture. I want us to get an overview of the prophet Malachi's message, point two there in your outline, an overview of his message. Again, how do you get the big picture of a book? You just read it over and over and over again. And after about the 10th, 15th reason, you begin to see how it divides. Most Christians today are sadly too lazy to do that. But again, when you can put the big picture, Genesis, four people, four events, four events, four people, fall, flood, do you remember? Nations, fall, flood. Don't tell me you forgot the book of Genesis already. Go back and listen to my first message. Four events, four people. So when you read it over and over and over again, you'll get the big picture. So let me divide the book up for you. This is, this is my division, so to speak, but I think if you read it, you'll probably agree with it. First, in the opening verses, the first five verses, the declaration of God's love. The declaration of God's love. And in this section of the book, in the opening verses, which really becomes the theme for the book, God looks back at his care in the past. You see a picture of God's care in the past. And he contrasts the Edomites with the Israelites to underscore this. In the second section of his prophetic ministry, starting in verse 6, 
you have the disloyalty in God's people, the disloyalty in his people. And in this section, God brings a complaint to the people in the present. He's dealing with a complaint in the present. And then in the third section that starts in 316 to the end of the book, you have the deliverance by God's servants. And here you have God's coming in the future. In this last section, he looks down the corridors of time to our day, to events that haven't even happened yet, that are going to happen uh, immediately after the catching up of the church. And this is why this book is so important, because he lives at the end of the age, but he writes of a people who will also live at the end of the age. How do we know we're at the end of the age? Because Israel is back in the land. That's the super sign that God gave. He would gather the Jewish people back into the land. And of course, in this uh, section, he, he deals with uh, some messengers that he's going to send and what will happen. So the declaration of God's love, the people are going to say, God, you don't really love us. Then he's going to deal with the disloyalty in God's people, and he's going to go for the priests. He's going to start with them. Why? Because as Jeremiah and Isaiah say, as the priests go, as the leaders go, so go the people. And that's why it is so important today in the church that we take seriously the requirements that God gives for leadership in the church. Because as the leaders go, so the people go. And that's why we don't quickly look to be a leader in the church. It's a good thing to go after the office of elder, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. But you don't clamor for that office. Why? Because you will incur a stricter judgment as James unfolds. And leaders are those who give a watch over people's souls. And there are many elders across America who really don't even care about the people. They don't even know who the people are. They just got a position. And that's all they want. And so God speaks to the disloyalty, especially in the leadership. And then we'll look at the deliverance by God's servants. Two critical servants that we're going to read about and study that are spoken of in the New Testament and the important role that they will play. One in reference to the first coming of Christ, his name is John the Baptist. And the other in reference to the second coming of Christ, his name is Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet is coming back. Every Jew at every Passover has a place setting for Elijah the prophet. Why? Because they believe what Malachi wrote. And they're expecting that at some point, this prophet will return. All right? So that's the big picture of the book. Again, the big picture will help you to fit the details. Now, with that said, let's crack the details of the first five verses. Creation, fall, flood, nations. Did you get it? I hope it came to your mind. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. There's the book of Genesis. What's Ephesians? One to three, what you believe. Four through six, how you behave. My goal, I don't have every single book down, but my goal, I have nearly all but about five books. I have an outline in my mind for every book of the Bible. Why? Because when you have that big picture, the details take on meaning, and then that book becomes a tool, not just for your own life, but for those that you are called to disciple. All right, the first five verses follow along, will you? Malachi chapter one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. 
But I have hated Esau, saw, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, you can see I've entitled this message, Doubting God's Love. And that's where these people were. They had become so callous spiritually They doubted whether God really loved them. And maybe you are in that situation this morning. There's some maybe financial challenge and you're saying, where is God? I thought you really cared for me. Why do we have such intense needs? Or maybe you're here this morning, you've lost a loved one, maybe a child, maybe a grandchild. You're saying, where is God's love in the midst of all this? And and God is going to underscore here his never failing love for his people. And so there are three timeless truths I want to underscore from these five verses. The first concerns the burden as as it is described. The burden as it is described. Again, the verse opens the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So this is the word of the Lord, and it's given through Malachi. Now, the word Malachi is a compound word. It literally means my messenger. Before we're done with the book, we'll see why his name is of such importance if you don't know already. But Malachi, well, there's not a whole lot known about him. We don't know who his daddy or his mom was. We don't know where he was born. He's kind of like one that he is going to prophesy about. He is like the one who's described as the voice crying out in the wilderness. But while we don't know much about his profession or his pedigree, everything that we need to know is given to us. There's a reason, I think, that God doesn't give us much information about this man, because he wants to underscore not the messenger, but the message. And that's important to hear in the 21st century. Sadly, because the Bible is no longer expounded. I spoke to a person this past week from California, and they said, you know, there's just a handful of churches in the West Coast that are exegeting the Scriptures, but the closest one to me is 50 miles away. That's the frustration. And so what happens when you don't exegete the scripture, then the messenger rather than the message becomes prominent. And so it's just the next sideshow. How dramatic the preacher is, what the lights, the skits, the music. And it's not concerning the message. And so God is going to underscore the importance of the message and not the messenger. And so there are two truths about this burden that I want you to think about. First, how the burden was laid on the prophet. How the burden was laid on the prophet. We read again here in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, the New New American Standard says the proclamation. If you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, and if you don't have a... um, copy of the New Testament with marginal notes where there's maybe a nuance in the Greek or the Hebrew that's important to understand and they'll give the literal rendering. You'll go out in the margin and it'll say L-I-T meaning literally. You want to get a copy and come to meet the pastor and by God's grace we'll provide one for you. Notice in the margin it says a burden and some English translations render it that way. It's the Hebrew word masah and it is describes something that um, is heavy on a preacher's heart. And so it's like a stone in his stomach. He has this deep felt burden 
that he wants his people to hear. The oracle, the the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. Why is he so burdened? Well, as we read the book, we'll discover they've become materialistic. They've become smug. They're very secular in their thinking. They're not godly. Now, they're jumping through all the religious hoops. We'd say today, well, they go to church, and they do this, and they do that. But there's no heart in it. You've got religion without relationship. You've got people who are dutifully obeying the Lord, but not out of a deep sense of love and devotion. And so he has this burden, and I'm sympathetic with him because sometimes as a pastor, and pastors know this, there's just a burden in your heart. And you want your people to get it because you love your people, and you want them to be changed and to find God's best. Secondly, how the burden was laid on the prophet, also how the burden was leveled by the prophet. How the, how the burden was leveled by the prophet. Please notice the question and the statement that we find in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. You'll notice Lord is in all caps, right? That's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. And we'll see sometimes in Malachi, it's capital L, small letter O-R-D which is a different word for God. Read the preface to the New American Standard if that's new to you. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, his delivery style is very different from the other Old Testament prophets. Most of the other Old Testament prophets write with a prose, and you'll even see that in the way it's the typeset is made with a lot of the prophetic portions of Scripture. But uh, they, they write in poetry, but he writes with prose, He he writes in a very definitive, objective, straightforward way. And it's interesting because he's going to highlight six sins of the people, six specific sins of the people. And the pattern will be the same. This is what God says, but this is what you say. This is what God says, this is what you say. And in each case, he's going to give God's answer. And so here we read, I have loved you, and their response is, How have you loved us? And so he's anticipating that objection. The Spirit of God is writing through Malachi. He's being moved along, to use Peter's words, by the Holy Spirit of God. And unlike the seeker-sensitive movement of our day that just wants you to come to church and feel good, the false prophets like the Joel Olsteins, he doesn't care what people think. He's going to, like, hammer us. And when I study Malachi, I'm usually bleeding all over my study by the time I'm done. He's going to step all over our toes, but he's going to do it out of a deep burden expressed in love. So that's the burden as it is described. Secondly, the brothers as they are depicted. Let's think about the brothers as they are depicted. Again, in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us. No more pathetic words than that question. How have you loved us? And so this opening paragraph becomes the underlying theme of the entire book. I've loved you, but you say you haven't really loved us. So here are the questions that Malachi is going to ask. And you might, as you read through the book this week in one sitting, it won't take you long Try to study these or at least underline them. In one in verse two, how have you loved us? In one in verse six, how have we despised your name? In chapter one in verse 17, how have we defiled you? 
In chapter 2 and verse 17, how have we wearied him? In chapter 3 and verse 8, and he'll combine two questions for this one sin. How shall we return? How have we robbed you? And then finally, what have we spoken against you? So seven questions to underscore six major problems that the people are just struggling with. And they're going to see that it is their lack of obedience that has created this lack of blessing. So here is the God of the universe, and he stoops down. And he says, don't you see that I love you? How have you loved us, Lord? And you'd think, just forget it. But not our God. He doesn't have to, but he wants to. And so he's going to address and show them so they can understand specifically how it is that he loved them. And he'll do it by highlighting two brothers, one named Jacob and one named Esau. Jacob, point A, is the brother that is loved depicting Israel. Jacob is the brother who is loved, and of course, he depicts the nation of Israel. Let's read verses two and three of this chapter. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet? I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Now, again, if you're using cross-references in the Bible, you'll notice that there's some two, two critical passages that are highlighted. You might want to write them in the margin next to verse 2. One would be Romans 9.13, Romans 9.13. And the other one would be Genesis 25, 23. Um, hold your finger in Malachi, don't lose it, and turn to the book of Romans. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then you come to Romans. And go to Romans chapter 9 for a moment. This is an oft-quoted portion of Scripture to defend what we will call a Calvinistic soteriology, that is, what the followers of John Calvin taught concerning salvation. Look at Romans 9 and look, if you will, at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, the two twins that we're speaking about today, Jacob and Esau, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. That's the Genesis passage we'll look at in a moment. Just as it is written, and he quotes our passage, Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, our hyper-Calvinistic friends would inform us that these two verses teach that God loved Jacob so as to save him, and God made Esau so as to damn him. Now, if you know the rest of the Scripture... Um, there are examples in the ninth chapter where if you try to put that uh, teaching on all the examples, you run into real problems. For instance, there's Ishmael and Isaac. Did Ishmael die and go to hell? I think not, not for one second. For that matter, think about Jacob. How is he described? At his death in Genesis 49, we read, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last, and notice he was gathered to his people. You will see that. Here's a chart that will help you to see some examples of that. In modern day New Covenant theology, we'd say he went home to be with the Lord. 
Under old covenant theology, we'd say he went to righteous Sheol, also called Abraham's bosom, also called paradise. When Abraham dies, the text says he was gathered to his people. When Ishmael dies, he's gathered to his people. Ishmael doesn't die and go to hell. He's gathered to his people. Do you think Abraham, the father of the faithful, the son whom he deeply loved, raised some reprobate for the fuel of hell? Isaac, when he dies, he's gathered to his people. We just read the text concerning Jacob. Aaron, when he dies, he's gathered to his people. Moses, when he dies, he's gathered to his people. King Josiah, when he dies, he's gathered to his people. Because believers, when they die, they went to righteous Sheol under the old covenant. Today, home of the Lord, this side of Calvary. And so again, this is very, very important for us to understand because Calvinistic thought is basically rooted in Roman Catholicism, which came from Augustine. We were in Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum last week, and the first alcove you go into, it's embarrassing, is Augustine and these great anti-Semitic statements that he made. Just embarrassing. And of course, Augustine plants the seeds for Roman Catholic theology that God has done with the nation of Israel and the Roman Catholic Church has replaced Israel. Calvin and Luther and others who come out of that denomination or church put a different spin on it and they say, well, it's not the Roman Catholic Church that's the new Israel, it's the body of Christ. So when Calvin approached Romans 9, 10, and 11, he didn't see Israel, he saw the doctrine of election. But if you just sit down at one read and go through those three chapters, you discover Romans 9 deals with Israel's election. That God chooses Israel out of all the nations of the world to bring the Messiah. 10, why they're in current rejection. Why is it when the Messiah came, they were largely in unbelief? And 11, their future restoration. And so Augustine planted the seeds, and it's embarrassing because for the most part, as you study the popes, they are some of the greatest, biggest, largest anti-Semites you can imagine. And it's disgusting when you read the words of John Calvin and Martin Luther and the gross anti-Semitic statements that they both made. Listen, Ishmael, who's also illustrated in this chapter, was gathered to his people. But what I want you to see is what's in view in Romans 9, as we will see letting Scripture interpret Scripture, is not individual election, but national election. You say, how can you be so sure? Well, again, because of what God writes in the Old Testament. Genesis 24, go there, don't lose uh, Romans. Keep your finger in Romans, Malachi, and now turn to Genesis 24. If you know Genesis 24, and uh, Paul assumes they did, which is why he quotes it, and Malachi, when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, assumes they knew Genesis, but today maybe most Christians don't. Genesis 24, in fact, before you go there for just a second, Step back for a moment. And again, just to give you some history here, if you're new to the Bible, uh, Isaac's married to this woman, Rebecca, and they've been married for 20 years, but there's no children. No children. She's barren. And Isaac is actually not the problem. Rebecca's the problem. And of course, uh, we read in, here in verse 21 Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 
Now, he learned an incredible lesson from Abraham. Remember, Abraham had Yitzhak, Isaac, up on top of Mount Moriah. He's got him tied down. Isaac is about 20 years of age, at least. The Mishnah says he's 36, but he's no little boy. He's easily able to overpower his old man because he is indeed an old man, and I don't say that disrespectfully. He's much older, much weaker. Here's a viral young man, but like Christ, and Isaac is a type of Christ, the writer of the Hebrews says, he willingly laid his life down. No one will take my life away, Jesus said, I will give it. And Isaac believes that though Abraham is going to kill him, that God is going to raise him. Why? Because of a promise that God made to Abraham concerning the son of promise. That it's not through Ishmael, the project, the Ishmael that the Messiah is going to come, but it's through Isaac. And so here's Jacob. He learned a lesson from his daddy, Isaac, because there they are up there on Mount Moriah. And of course, Jacob becomes then the son of promise. And if God is going to bring a new child through Jacob, then Rebecca has to get pregnant at some point. She has to be pregnant. And of course, he also learned from Abraham that what Abraham did to initially orchestrate the circumstances, not in rebellion, but in ignorance, where he got the slave of the bondwoman and he brought Ishmael, he realized that that was not going to be God's plan, that it was going to come, this baby, through Rebecca. Now look at Genesis 22 and verse 16 for a second. By myself, God said, I have sworn, declares the Lord. And Isaac's on the altar. He's listening to this. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the, the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Isaac understands that. So if Rebekah remains barren, then God can't fulfill this promise. But God is a promise-keeping God. Every promise he makes, he will fulfill. So he knows that Rebekah somehow has to become pregnant because all the nations of the world have to come through their offspring. So here in Genesis 25... In verse 22, sorry we're flipping around here, but the children struggle together. So she is pregnant and there are twins. The children struggle together within her. And she said, if it is so, why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She knew this was no ordinary pregnancy. There's all this fetal baby movement in her womb. And she is sensitive to the Lord, so she goes to the Lord. Now, if she'd gone to an obstetrician, an obstetrician would say, well, the reason there's so much turmoil within is you, you've got twins. That's the problem. But she is sensitive and she has a sense that there's more to it than that. So the Lord said to her, verse 23, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And so the two nations represent a prophetic sonogram. God is saying there are two nations and the older is going to serve the younger, which we just saw Paul quote in Romans chapter nine. So of course, these two nations come. Jacob supersedes Esau. He has 12 sons. His um, offspring is called Israel as his name is changed to Yitzrael. 
and um, Esau, he has his children, and he forms the Edomites. Furthermore, we read, and one people shall be stronger than the other. And indeed, the Jews were stronger than the Edomites, if you know the history. And the older shall serve the younger. So it's crystal clear between Genesis and Malachi that God is predicting that there's going to be one people who will overrule and supersede the other nation. Now back here in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Again, I can't think of anything more pathetic than the question that they ask. God stoops down nonetheless, not because he has to, but he wants to, and he answers their question with a question. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes, he was, declares the Lord. Yet, I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. So once again, he's saying precisely what Paul said in Romans 9 and verse 13. By the way, does it bother you that God said, I loved Jacob and hated Esau? You know how the Calvinistic people take this? They say, well, before the babies were born, God, because he's sovereign, designated one child to go to heaven and the other child to go to hell. Now, they would say they both deserve to go to hell because they're sinners, but God designated one to go to heaven and one to go to hell. And so they teach the doctrine of election from passages like this. But is God choosing one to go to heaven and one to go to hell, or is he choosing one nation over another? Well, when you look at Genesis, which is what is being quoted in Malachi or referenced, there are two nations in your womb. And God is choosing one nation over another. He has to choose a nation. He has to narrow the focus so that people will know who the Messiah is. So out of the human race, from Shem comes Abraham. From Abraham comes ultimately Jacob, 12 tribes. Out of those 12 tribes comes Judah, from whom the Messiah comes. God just tightens the focus so that people would be able to identify the Messiah. So here's some passages you might want to jot down that I think mitigate against the Calvinistic interpretation of Romans 9.13. Jot these down, 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Paul says to Timothy, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All men, not some, but all. In fact, he'll say a few verses later in verse 6 that he gave his life a ransom for all. Now, there are some Calvinists today that are more Calvinistic than John Calvin. One of my sons in college wrote a paper why John Calvin didn't believe in limited atonement, and he quoted right out of his own commentaries. So we have Calvinists today that are more Calvinistic than John Calvin was, who say that Jesus didn't die for everyone, but only the elect. And you'll pick it up by their wording. They'll say, well, Jesus died for those who would repent and believe, meaning only for the elect. I met a man yesterday, and I could tell him to his face. I said, God loves you. Christ died for you. I don't know if he'll believe or not. But Christ died for him. Why? Because he gave himself a ransom for all, and he desires all men to be saved. Now, they'll have a comeback, and they'll say, well, what he means by all men are all kinds of men, kings and rulers and so forth. And if you want to study this in depth, take my course in the Institute on Soteriology. And so God is clear. And I think it's important, by the way, when you think about verses like this, that you make a distinction between God's determinative will and God's moral will. God's determinative will is what God is going to do no matter what. 
God uh, spoke the world into existence without our permission. And there's coming a day when God is going to speak the world out of existence. He's going to destroy the planet that we're on with fire. But then there's God's moral will that's predicated on choices that we make. In God's moral will, it's clear that he hates murder. But men murder. It's clear that God hates lying and false witnesses. But men lie. And so God has given us freedom to choose. Jot down this verse, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all, A-double-L, all, to come to repentance. Now, the followers of Calvin would say, well, that's right, Pastor. God wants all people to come to repentance, but they cannot come to repentance unless God first draws them. Well, that's true. The Bible says in Romans 3 and verse 11, there is none who seeks God. There is none who understands. Listen, uh, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And unless God takes the initiative, we can never be saved. There was a man uh, by the name of Jacobus Arminius. We speak of his doctrine as Arminianism. And he says, man is so free, he doesn't need any help from God. That's not true. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But then the question becomes, does God draw everyone? Well, Jesus said this in John 16, 8, and he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. What does the world mean? World? (laughs) The world means world. And he's reminding me that God wants men to be saved, that Christ died for all men, the whole world, and the Spirit of God works in the whole world, but not all men respond as a result of their free will. But the initiative begins with God, not with us. God comes into the garden. Where are you, Adam? It's not Adam who comes to God and says, oh God, we blew it. We're so sorry. Forgive us. No, they're running. They're hiding. There's none who seeks God, not one. God initiates with man. And God initiates with the world by the Spirit of God. The problem is not with God's sovereignty. The problem is with man's will. Jot down this, John 5, 39 and 40. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Underscore unwilling in your mind. Not unable, but unwilling. I think also as Jesus wept and his heart was broken, there in the Mount of Olives as he overlooked the city of Jerusalem, he said in Matthew 23, 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling, not unable, but unwilling. I love what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Jot that down. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Some of your English Bibles say for the sake of those who are elect. It's the Greek word electos that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul, why did you struggle and go through so much hardship in preaching the gospel? Why were you beaten? 
Why were you fasting the way you did? Why were you pickled in the Mediterranean? Why were you stoned? And Paul's answer would simply be, for the sake of the elect. For the sake of those who are chosen. You see that word chosen? Again, it's the word elect. And if we said to Paul, well, Paul, who are the elect? Like Peter, he would say the elector based on the foreknowledge of God. Progonosco, God's prior knowledge. God in eternity past could look down the tunnels of time and see how people would respond to general revelation and creation and conscience through specific revelation as the Spirit of God convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he could see who would believe such that he can write their names before the foundation of the world in his book of life. But the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. Listen, friends. If all the elect are going to be saved anyway, Paul, just go fishing. Why don't you just relax? Take it easy. Don't be so uptight. I believe it's a slander to the character of God to say that this little baby was created so that this little baby, when they grow up and are accountable, can go to hell. And this little baby, when they grow up and are accountable, can go to heaven. To me, that's a slander on the character of God, and it sucks out all the evangelistic motivation. And so Calvinistic churches are way behind when it comes to personal evangelism. They send very few missionaries, support few missionaries, because of their view of salvation. So in Romans 9, Paul wrote, we read it earlier, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So God had a plan for Jacob that he didn't have for Esau. God had a plan for Esau that he didn't have for Jacob. Pastor, are you saying that God literally actually hated Esau? Well, let's define some terms. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. This word hated is used in a comparative sense. Uh, Let me read to you from Genesis 29 to give you an illustration. Genesis 29 and verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also. Indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Please note, nothing is said here about hate. He just loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. If you remember, Jacob had been working seven years for Rachel. His father-in-law tricked him. They worked it out. Nonetheless, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Then in verse 31 of that chapter, we're told, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. If you have the New American Standard with footnotes or in the ESV, God saw that Leah was hated. Again, it's a Hebraism. Um, What do you mean she was hated? It just means she was loved less. Or positively, he loved Rachel more. And that's, by the way, how Jesus uses the word in John 14 and verse 26 when he speaks of discipleship. Listen to these words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Did Jesus literally want you to hate your father, your mother, your wife? No, that would be in violation of the Ten Commandments, which he affirmed that men should honor their father and mother, unlike the Pharisees. Does God want me to hate my wife? No, he calls me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. But he's using a Hebraism. He's using a point of comparison. My wife knows that I love Jesus more than I love her, and that's the way she'd want it. Because when Jesus is first in my life, there's harmony in the home. 
On another occasion, totally different day, Jesus didn't use this Hebraism, but he said it this way. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So very clearly, the prophet Malachi is not talking about heaven and hell. He's speaking about two nations. And the descendants of Jacob, namely the Israelites, and the descendants of Esau have different roles. He is electing and choosing one nation over another. All right? Now, Esau, point B on your outline. Esau is the brother who is loathed depicting Edom. He is loathed depicting Edom. We read now in verse 3 to explain further of God's great love for the Jewish people who are questioning it. He said, but I've hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Not only did God love Jacob, but here at the start of verse 3, he contrasts it by saying, I've hated Esau. Now, the Edomites are decimated by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., And the scripture teaches that their land becomes a desolation. Some Bibles say a wasteland inherited for the jackals, just wild animals. Now, the Israelites are also carried away by the Babylonians. But God brings them back. The Edomites are carried away in wrath. The Israelites are carried away in love, in discipline as a form of chastisement. God brings one back into the land and he restores them, but not the other nation. Why would God do that? Here's a chart just to remind us why God had this thing against Edom. Number one, Edom. Again, these are the descendants of Esau. They're called Edomites. They refused to allow Moses' passage during those times in the wilderness. They needed to come through the land and they said, you're not coming through. Edom fought Israel's kings. They fought against David and Solomon and Josephat and Jehoram. Edom gloated over the destruction of Babylon and looted it before they were carried away. So here in verse 3, God is simply reminding us of his choice. Again, he can look down the corridors of time and he can see two men, both sinful. It's not like Jacob is problem and sinful free. But nonetheless, he has a heart for the things of God. Edom, the Edomites, Esau, he despised his birthright. He, he fostered a people that were against Israel, became one of their great enemies. And when the New Testament gives commentary on the man's life in Hebrews 12, he's called godless Esau. So here in Malachi 1, he's reminding us, yes, I have a great love for the people of Israel. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And by the way, you cannot have one quality without the other. You cannot have hot without cold. You cannot have big without small. You cannot have low without high. And if a judge loves justice, he will hate crime. If a doctor loves his patients, he will hate disease. And if people love God, they'll hate sin. Don't tell me you love God and don't hate drugs. Don't tell me you love babies and and, and, and in favor of abortion. You know, we got these politicians talking about 15 weeks or 10 weeks or it should be zero weeks. Life begins at the moment of conception. Don't tell me you love God and and, and you love babies and, and are in favor of abortion. So God in loving Jacob 
and in hating those who would become Israel's worst enemy, that was showing that I really love you people. Two pregnant children in the womb, side by side, and God chooses one nation over the other. Third and finally, quickly, beyond the burden as it's described and the brothers as they are depicted, there's the blindness as it is dispelled. And God dispelled Israel's blindness by his great blessings. So these people who questioned whether or not God loved them were blinded to the truth. And so God dispels their blindness in two ways. First, he dispels Israel's blindness by his great blessing. And I want you to see how God opened their eyes to the reality that he really loved Israel more than the Edomites. Look at verse 4. We're told, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Now keep in mind that the Edomites are an incredibly wicked people. Edom, in fact, you can read about them. I preached one time. I've only heard one sermon in my whole life from the book of Obadiah. I preached it. (laughs) My son is up there in the... uh, nosebleed seats this morning, and he used to ask me, Obadiah, Obadiah, when are you ever going to preach Obadiah? And finally, about 10 years after he moved out of home, I preached Obadiah. But Obadiah is an important little book. Again, maybe there's someone out there who's preached Obadiah. I've never heard a sermon in my whole life on Obadiah. When I preached, I thought, well, maybe I can find some sermon. I couldn't find any. (laughs) Obadiah is important because it speaks of the Edomites. And it speaks of their wickedness and God's judgment on the Edomites. In Zechariah chapter 2, the land we were in last week was called the Holy Land. God gives it that designation. But the land that Edom would make their own is called the Wicked Territory. And so God deals with them. And of course, there comes a time when the Edomites marry the Nabataeans and they're called the uh, Edomians. And they produce a group of leaders in Israel's history when Christ comes on the scene called the Herods. Most of us know Herod the Great, who slaughtered all the little children in Bethlehem, two and under. We at least know Herod Antipas, and there's seven Herods listed in the New Testament. Those are all descendants of Edom. So God has the final word. They may build. Well, we're going to build. God says, I'll tear down. Secondly, God dispelled Israel's blindness by their privileged witness, by their privileged witness. Look now, if you will, at verse 5. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. God is reminding them of the incredible witness that they have towards the Gentile nations of the world, that they are his chosen instrument, that the one true God of Israel is to be feared and revealed. They were to be a light to the nations. Remember, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And God is just telling them, listen, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel, meaning I don't just love the Jewish people, I love Gentiles, and thanks God that he does, because I'm one of them. And I want you to be a witness. That's a privileged opportunity that you have to represent the king of the universe. And by the way, as New Testament saints, we represent the king of the universe. We are ambassadors for Christ, the New Testament says. 
We represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ is given that title and the Father is given that title. And you ought to be able to know where those two passages are when a JW shows up at your door. Because each person is equal. The Father is equal to the Son. They're both called King of kings and Lord of lords. And Peter will say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a privilege God has given them and what a privilege he has given to us. Listen, you Israelites, you may be poverty stricken. You may be under foreign dominion. You may be despised by your nations, by the nations around you, but I love you and I've privileged you to be my witness. The problem is not with me. The problem is with you and your apathy. And we'll see that before we're done with this book. Some applications as we close. Number one, disobedience always produces insensitivity and blindness. In each of the six sinful issues that Malachi the prophet will raise, we're going to see that these people are going through the motions, but their heart is a long way away. And disobedience always produces spiritual blindness. It's like uh, today when there is unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our life, the Spirit of God has choked out <clears throat> what he wants to do through us and to us he can't do. And I fear that some of us listening today may be there. Listen, many of God's blessings are unconditional. He's going to do it no matter what. If you've met Jesus as your Savior, truly met him, and you're a new creature in Christ, you're going to heaven. And someday he'll catch you up in the air, and in the twinkling of an eye, you'll be changed. But there's so many blessings of God that are conditional in nature. And when we have compromise in the human heart, we miss those blessings that God wants to pull off through us. Some years ago, I had a young man who came into my office. He was depressed. He was despondent. He said he was lonely. He said, I want to get married and can't seem to find the right girl. And where do you go to church? Well, occasionally I go and tell me a little bit about yourself. And he spilled his guts and he started dating an unbeliever and was morally compromised. But now he wanted a good, godly woman. There's forgiveness. Today can be the first day of the rest of anyone's life. I said, but let me ask you a question. Here you are in my office, despondent, depressed, lonely, and also lukewarm. I said, if you came to me, and my daughter wasn't married yet, and you asked me for my daughter's hand in marriage, you think I would give her to you? I said, not on your life. I wouldn't give her to some lukewarm, apathetic, complacent Christian. Not on your life. I said, there's some young lady, and she's praying, oh, Lord, I want a godly man, someone who can lead me, someone who's serious about the things of God. And God looks down from heaven. You think he's going to answer that prayer by giving that girl you? Not on your life. And there are so many blessings of God that we're just blinded to that we don't even see why God is not meeting this need. Because there's compromise in the human heart. 
Secondly, I'm reminded from studying these first verses that thanklessness produces insensitivity. Thanklessness produces insensitivity to God's love. One of the first signs that we're becoming insensitive to the love of God is that we're grumblers. We're unthankful. And we become insensitive when we are unthankful. And after a while, we become cold and calloused and lukewarm. And we can come here and jump through all the religious hoops. But our heart can be a million miles away. 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 1 reminds us that when we become ingrateful, we're in a downward tailspin away from the Lord. And we're going to see as we work through this prophet that this is a people who are filled with ingratitude. And by the way, that's America today. That's our culture today. A world of grumblers. And if we don't guard our own hearts, we'll be right in there with them. How have you loved us, Lord? And of course, the greatest demonstration is the cross. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. Now, Holy Father, we thank you that though there are some people who are listening to me today who are unsaved, that they are not unloved. That Jesus died and bled for them. That every blot and blemish and stain of sin could be forgiven. That though our sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as wool. Help someone today, Father, in simple childlike faith to put their faith where you put their sin on Jesus, the one who knew no sin, who became sin, that we might in exchange receive his righteousness. Father, I know many, most listening have met you, but I pray that as we work through this short little prophet, that we would not simply be those who hear the word, but those who are wanting to apply it. Help us not to just be smarter sinners, to become more like Jesus who's worthy of our praise and honor that our life might exemplify who he is. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. Maybe you're here and you've received Christ. You've never made it public. You may be in Graniteville. You may be in Grays in those auditoriums. Someone is down front to meet you. Step out during this invitation. Maybe you're saved, but you haven't been baptized in obedience to Christ. I want to invite you to make that decision today. Maybe you're here and you need a church home. Every believer needs a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. Don't be a floater like millions of Christians are. Commit yourself to a local fellowship. So if there's a decision like that you need to make today, I'm going to invite you to step out and meet me here in the front. Would you come?